Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. Tonight we've got a guest of a comic that we love, Mark Russell. Uh, but before we introduce him, I want to go over to my host, Alana. How are you doing? Great. Super excited for today's episode. And um, one more quick reminder for folks that if you would like to participate in an online gathering of Black Panther fans and uh, racial justice activists, Time to get on Black Panther Fan Activist Con, and you can uh, message me for more information. It'll it's also up on our it's also up on our site and on Twitter. So yeah, absolutely, and we'll, we'll plug that at the end of the episode, make it easier for folks to uh, find. Um, so I, I was really tempted to have Heaven's Destroyed in my horrible <laughs> version of Snapple Plus. But I'm not going to for people to do that. <laughs> so tonight we're talking stage left of Snapple Plus Chronicles, written by Mark with art by Mike Fian. Uh, Mark has joined us tonight. Uh, he's an Eisner-nominated satirist who is afraid to go to very serious places. He uh, takes uh, his stories, take on Trumpism, bullying, war, genocide, historical amnesia, and more, as well as featuring Forbes, Slate Magazine, Pace Magazine, and numerous best graphic novels list, just, not just 2017, but 2016 and probably 2015 and so on and so on. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to attempt to describe Exit Stage Left with Chronicles. Uh, so, one, welcome, Mark, and we're going to let you describe it, because it is a crazy concept that I think we love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to correct something you said earlier in the introduction. I'm not sure how this got in the bio. I've actually never been nominated for an Eisner. Oh. Uh-huh. Really? <laughs> well, perhaps this time. I know. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps this is predictive. Okay. But yeah. I, uh, yeah. Yes. My apologies. Uh, but, but yeah, well, we're gonna I, I, uh, <laughs> the yeah the concept though for for Snagglepuss really kind of started uh, on Facebook. I, I was just writing little lines uh, like like Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound, having convers having like little conversations as if they were you know Southern Gothic playwrights. And my editor Marie is also a Facebook friend. She says. Are you practicing for? Are you, you know, coming up with an idea for a comic? And it never occurred to me that it'd be anything more than just like a, like a little Facebook giggle. Uh, but uh, she got me thinking about it, and, and it, that that kind of seeded the germ in my mind of like turning this into like an actual uh, comic. Impressive. I mean, yeah, I mean, how I've been explaining it to people is that it's a comic about a Tennessee Williams-inspired playwright dealing with, you know, the realities of 1950s America, including the House Un-American Activities Committee, you know, systemic homophobia, and the Red Scare, and uh, that playwright is also Sagalpuss. Yeah, yeah, in a deeper sense, it's really about um, how national paranoia and the, the demands to conform kind of come at the expense of uh, a nation's culture and our ability to live authentic lives. But yeah, I think that's the gist of it. It's about um, Snagglepuss uh, having to live a, a secret life as a, as a gay Southern Gothic playwright in the 1950s New York with the House on American Activities Committee like weighing down on him. You know, yeah, we, were, we, we love the idea. We loved it. I mean, it's it's it, what's interesting to me. Like, and I, I sort of want to go into more of your background as a writer in a minute. But I just want to say, like, what's really interesting to me in the story is obviously, like, I you know, we're, we're very political on the show, so we love comics that help people to consider the political implications of the world we live in now and look at things that have happened in the past that could very much come to pass again. But the thing that really struck me with this is, you know, I as a kid. Um, I didn't really watch Snagglepuss shows, and I was, like, kind of aware of what characters were sort of negative gay stereotypes, and so for me, it feels, and I, you know, I'm queer, but I'm not a gay man. For me, it feels really feeling to see somebody take a character that where, like, him being gay was the part of like, a joke about him, and to see it actually being like, no, like, this is real and good, and it's not to be mocked. You know, the humor is from his observations and not because of who, who he is. So I thought that was a yeah, really powerful choice. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, my personal philosophy of writing is that writing is an act of empathy, first and foremost. 
and that he, if you want to tell an interesting story, if you want to do anything that's, that's good, even if it's funny, it needs to take the subject matter seriously. And that's what I try to do with all my comics. I try to, like, whatever I'm assigned to, whether it's the Flintstones or if I'm doing Snagglepuss, I take the subject seriously and try to, like, see the world through their eyes and, and the way, what they would be going through. And um, if you lack that basic empathy as a writer, being able to put yourself in the shoes of another character and see their world through their eyes, then, then yeah, that's what you're going to get. You're just going to get sort of cheap gay jokes and just people kind of kind of making fun of the character they're writing about. But that doesn't feel very uh, satisfying or, or um, to, to anyone, I think. Do you, did, you, did you, like, when you began looking at this project, like when you were doing the, for example, the dialogue in Facebook, like did you always sort of envision, did you always sort of envision Snagglepuss as being a gay character? Yeah, yeah. Um, to me, I mean, I, I think that that's when I when I watched the cartoons. I remember even thinking this, you know, when I was younger and I'd see the cartoons on on TV. There's obviously a backstory to the character that is never addressed in the in the cartoons. One, you know, he seems like a like a gay man, like he's based on. Um, Know, sort of a, a Quentin Crisp or a, a Tennessee Williams character. He's, he's very simple, flamboyant. But beyond mm-hmm. that, he, he's clearly got a connection to theater. I mean, all of his catchphrases are theater references. Uh, Heavens to Murgatroyd is a Gilbert Sullivan reference, and Exit Stage Left is an obviously uh, uh, a Stage mm-hmm. Directions reference. So, other, but he, but the, the cartoons, he's never really, at least the ones I saw, he was never really in any sort of theater environment. He was always hanging out in a cave or, or you know, uh, on a train or something. And so I thought it's weird that they would create this obvious backstory for him and never really talk about it. So that's what I'm trying to do with this comic, is talk about like the read between the lines on Snagglepuss and tell the backstory that the cartoon does. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, because like, you always Sorry, this is just digital weirdness will pass in a moment. Um, it's always interesting, like, you know, when it comes to queer coding and characters and children's entertainment, especially, like, you know, like when we were younger and in our youth, like, there's always the question of, like, what is the subtext that kids realize on one level and what just sort of becomes a way that they view effeminate people as being worth mockery, but there's no real sense of, like, yeah. whether somebody is gay or not, you know? And I think it ultimately boils down to a lack of empathy. You see somebody as a two-dimensional mm-hmm. object, then then they become a subject of mockery. But if you see them as a three-dimensional subject, you know somebody with their own perspective in the world, with their own sort of uh, life beyond what you see in the in the in the cartoon that you've been shown, then they become very empathetic. They become very real. So, as someone who is not a uh, playwright who is a gay Southern Pink Mountain Lion, like what <laughs> kind of work? Uh, did you do to sort of get into the character's perspective for for the for the series? Well, I think most of the work I did was just sort of researching the world that Snagglepuss would live in, the the world he inhabits, and that to me, uh, well, then all I need to figure out is well, how would I feel? How, what would I do if I were in these situations? And it really, at that point, becomes an exploration more of my own sort of like opinions and weaknesses and, and uh, incentives. Uh, when I put myself in the character, in the place of the character that I'm writing about. So you know, I read a lot. Of, you know, I read a lot of Tennessee Williams. I uh, did make just try to get the voice I wanted. I I read about the House on American Activities, and I read about a lot of the events in 1953. Uh, just trying to make sure that the, the people that I was having show up and the events that I was having happen would work would work for the timeline historically that I'm putting Snagglepuss in. And I had to fudge it a few times. The, the timeline doesn't mm-hmm. exactly work out right. But, but by and large, it does. And I put a lot of historical events from the 50s in this, this, this six-age issue. So it's really kind of about Snagglepuss and having this, this place in time, which I think is uh, a really unique time in American history because it is at once a time of deep national paranoia with the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare and um, – you know, the fear of the Soviet Union. And the, my, mom, my mom grew up during that time, and she thought, as a girl, mm-hmm. that they were going to die in a nuclear war any day. That was just a fact of life that Americans grew up with. And it, it colored a lot of their their demands for conformity and a lot of their national paranoia about people who thought or dressed differently than they did. Uh, but at the same time, it was also a time of really immense creativity. 
I mean, you have the birth of cool. You've got the you know Southern Gothic playwrights. You've got um, the birth of television as a medium, uh, and and all this intense creativity going on at the same time. There's this sort of mass demand for conformity uh, because of the fear of the Soviet Union. So that seems like a really unique and fascinating time in American history. Uh, I was really lucky to choose that time because uh, you know you couldn't put Snagglepuss in a better era for him to, uh, to to kind of deal with the subjects I wanted to deal with. When it, when it comes to the, 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 the um, um, research, research the, the, you said you, you did a lot of research, research in history. history. How much, how much did, did you do as far as, far as actual, actual uh, characters? Uh, uh, you know, are the people, people that you picked, picked up on the American actual people that were in that committee? Well, there's no actual Congress people who are on that committee. Frankly, I didn't think their, their, their stories weren't the ones I wanted to tell. And the committee, to me, seems to work as a sort of this monolithic villain. So I didn't want to give them too many personal identities. So I kind of focused them all into this one fictitious uh, sort of villain. Uh, her name is Gigi Allen. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I made her the focal point of, of like the, the committee, just to give a, a human, uh, albeit snarling, but, a, but a, with a snarling human face, to the opposition to, to Snagglepuss. Does she know that she's named after Gigi Allen, the uh, shock punk uh, artist, creator of such songs as Bite Me, You Scum? Or <laughs> You know, no, but I, I thought about including a panel towards the end of the series that would be her as an old woman, and she's watching TV, and there, there's something about Gigi Allen, the, <laughs> the New York shock punk, like vomiting or defecating on stage. And that, that being like the, uh, the last we see of her, like her sort of like end story. Yeah. Oh, I like it. I like it. To me, that really says it all. Um, but you know, but there's a lot of interesting like historiography of you know the life experience of gay men in New York around that time, and it's difficult because like the whole, gener- like multiple generations of gay men died because the government is homophobic and evil. Um, so I know that it's hard to have conversations with you know, survivors of that time period as well as because they're old. But I was curious if there were, like, particular uh, perspectives or or, or stories that you looked at for, like, specifically for, like, gay men's experience in New York in that period. Well, I looked at some uh, old uh, copies of one magazine, which was the first gay magazine that actually published, first published in 1953, the very year that set in. So that was really a stroke of luck and, and, and sort of enlightening. And, and that's mostly about Los Angeles, and Los Angeles was actually much more of a, uh, a, a, a locus for, for gay bars and, and gay nightlife at the time than New York was. New York was much more conservative, buttoned down. But the Stonewall, uh, it wasn't just the Stonewall in the gay bar that we know of, but it was like a, like a restaurant called the Stonewall. So I put, that was open in 1953, so I, I set a lot of the series there. And I, you know, I watched um, the... Uh, the PBS documentary about the about the, um, the, the the gay bar scene in New York leading up to the Stonewall riots, which of course took place in 1969, so 16 years later than the, the timeline of the story I'm telling. But I try to sort of foreshadow like how this this clash between the police and the, the gay men who frequent these bars because they have no other place where they can meet uh, and be themselves how this was inevitable and, and how the events of 1953 and Snagglepuss really kind of set it up uh, for happening later. Uh, so, yeah, I did a lot of research on, on the Stonewall riots and the Stonewall uprising and, and, the, uh, and the events leading up to it. And uh, one of the points I make in the comic is that, uh, that, that when, they, when they broke it, you know, there's a raid in, in the comic, which I don't want to foreshadow, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but but what what the raids do? They kind of accomplish the opposite of what the police want. The police want to shut these places down. They want to like suppress them and make them impossible. But when you when you go on a raid, when you raid a place, and then it's in the newspapers the next morning that oh there's this, this gay bar in the West Village and it was raided. What that does is it doesn't doesn't destroy the 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 the, the place. It tells everyone else in the city that such places are possible. So after you know these raids, you have more gay bars popping up all over the city because people never realized that such a thing was possible until they read about this raid in the paper. And then all of a sudden you've got um, you know 
uh, gay bars like Eve's in New York and, or, um, you know, the, uh, all kinds of different gay bars popping up because they, uh, directly as a result of their attempts to suppress them. Mm, that's a great point. And, I, I, yeah, I feel like that's, that's not a spoiler to bring that up. That's the kind of thing where you, like, expect this to happen in the world in which it's set. So, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's not too much of a surprise. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's largely a theme that's about, about how trying to suppress something, uh, trying to keep people from living their lives, ultimately uh, accomplishes the opposite of what you're doing. So it's, it's, it's a futile gesture anyway. But you definitely go into, like, the pain that people experience, you know, by being forced to hide who they are and, you know, being forced to uh, be seen as sinful. I mean, like, you're definitely addressing that in the story very clearly. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to create. It's hard to uh, live a meaningful life if you can't be true to yourself, if you can't live outwardly. And, and, and you're right. Uh, you said, mentioned earlier about how the government basically killed people with homophobia. And that's exactly what it is. If you're not allowed to be who you are and live an authentic of life, you're not really living. And by forcing people to live in closets, forcing people to live double lives with the threat of exposure, uh, they did, in fact, even the people that physically they did not kill, they, they ended those people's lives. Do you feel like there's particular obligation to, like, how we tell the story because of this being something that, like, you know, actual people live? Yeah, well, I think um, as a writer, you always have an obligation to tell a story respectfully, to tell it as though that these are actual human beings who are inhabiting the story, because they are. And if you're not doing that, then you're just sort of playing with dolls. And that's never really been mm-hmm. of interest to me, and I don't, I don't think people find that compelling as a reading experience. I mean, what somebody had to check me with is, like, for me, it feels very natural to take anthropomorphic animals, like, seriously as, you know, actors and characters in the story. But I think, you know, for a lot of people, that's not, like, the first place they go to, to think about, like, how to tell that. So what do you think is, like, the power of having, you know, anthropomorphic characters in the story? Like, what is the – like, why does that work really well? Well, um, Ursula Kayla Gwynn has a great – quote where she says the the artist is the child who survived and i think that in a lot of ways you know if you look at children playing with dolls or children playing with stuffed animals to them these stuffed animals have real lives they, they have names they're they're not just some toy that they throw around they, they have like personalities they've got very real lives and at some point as adults we become jaded and sinful and that ability to sort of like empathize with with things that are not only people, but with, with, with things that, that um, we used to have great affection for. And so I think that in a lot of ways, when you anthropomorphize or when you create you know, these, these characters that, that are you know, cartoon animals or whatnot, you're really trying to invoke this, this primordial empathy that we all had, but at some point lost. Hmm. Actually, actually, I have a question, have a question about, about the, the way the, the way world, the world works itself. itself. You know, obviously, obviously, there's, there's anthropomorphized, anthropomorphized animals uh, and, and, and humans, humans as well, well and, and humans dressed as animals, animals play. play. And can you explain, like, like, like did you actually come, come up with the rules for the way this world works? Or just kind of explaining for those who might not be familiar, like, just this world in general. It's very different than having a bunch of anthropomorphized animals. Yeah, I didn't worry too much about the rules. I just kind of wrote the, the, the characters and the scenes I wanted to have. I didn't get too hung up in sort of explaining myself about, oh, this is how you can have animals and people together, or this is why you know the animals consider themselves people. I think once you start doing that, you start sort of thinking too much about the the dynamics or you know the the, the how somebody's going to call you out on Twitter uh, if you do it wrong. You begin to lose focus of the story and the characters, and really that's the important thing. So I just kind of write the things that I, I, the, the, the best things I possibly can and let the rules worry about themselves. Oh, that's interesting, because I definitely read it as significant that Snagglepuss's wife is also a pink mountain lion and that Droopy Dog's former wife is also a uh, blue basset hound. I, I figured it was sort of like about how, you know, you weren't allowed, like the anti-miscegenation laws and stuff like that, like the laws about, you know, race and stuff. I, I kind of just assumed that yeah. was what that was doing. I kind of thought about that, like, you know, is this really, a, a, are they different ethnicities? 
because there's more than one pink lion. <laughs> Lila lion is also a pink lion, and there are others. And uh, Huckleberry Hound, his name is Hound, and people refer to him as like being a being a handsome dog. Uh, it, but I, but again, I didn't want to get too hung up on like the the, the categories and characterizations because they weren't mm-hmm. really central to the story I wanted to tell. I just want ultimately to think of them all as like as like people. Well, I definitely feel like it was really great to have um, the love interest, to have um, Sazelpuss's love interest with a Cuban refugee uh, from and from Batista, and like I really liked how he sort of brought the additional political framework to to Snagglepuss and like that that story was included in it. Yeah, and I think that that in a lot of ways, Pablo, his, his boyfriend, who's from Cuba, is kind of somebody I want to be able to talk to Americans now. I think people don't see the writing on the wall because they're, they're, they're always thinking from the memories of their youth. And they're thinking that nobody thinks of like fascism or authoritarianism can really come to America because it, it hasn't before in their lifetime. They haven't seen it. So I think we all need a good talking to from somebody who has lived in a dictatorship or from somebody who mm-hmm. has it. You know, things go south very quickly or has been in a, a world where you didn't realize you were living in a dystopia until, it, you know, the police came for you. And I think that's what Americans need now is I need somebody from that perspective talking directly to them that just because you're an American and just because this is America does not mean it can't happen here or happen to you. And, you know, you might hold on to the, the great nightlight of patriotism, hoping that just because by virtue of being American that, that you are immune to these sorts of dictatorships and authoritarian police states that have basically run every other place in the world at one time or another in history. But it's really sort of a false optimism. Mm -hmm. You have to take these things very seriously, even as an American. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this, the uh, when you were developing sort of the, the plans and the character designs for the stories, like you you know you you definitely uh, you had a different artist in the um, the earlier sort of I guess backup stories than you have working with you now. I I think Mike Seahan's work is amazing, by the way. Um, how did you guys sort of go about translating like what had been like very flat, iconic level looking characters in the Hannibal Barbera cartoon into things that were not just like more three-dimensional, like three-dimensional in multiple levels, right? But also like yeah. specific time and place. Like, well, I, I know that I feel like, I mean, I wish I had the artist on as well. Ah, but you know, you've worked with two different artists on this process. I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you guys approached that. Well, really that's all the magic of Marie Javins, my editor. Um, I just kind of told her about the aesthetic I was going for and, you know, what, a, what the plot was going to be like. And of course I sent her the script for the eight-page preview. And then it's kind of up to her to find the artist who she thinks is right for it. And um, Howard Porter was selected to do the eight-page uh, sampler and did a really good job, in my opinion. Uh, I, I think be, be, he normally does you know, superhero work and, and, and much bigger titles. But I think she wanted um, somebody that, a name that people would recognize on that eight-page. Uh, so she got mm-hmm. him because she knew he was such a respected artist. And then uh, this is actually kind of, I think, Mike being like first sort of big two comic. And she just loved his artwork. And she showed him, showed me this stuff that he got for. And I just thought it was fantastic. I thought it was the perfect look for, for this comic. So it's really all her doing. She just finds the right people and plugs it in. And uh, I don't know how she does it, but she, she always manages to find the right artist. Well, you know, as a, as a person who has a pet cat, um, I... You know, there's definitely like a limitation in what the musculature of different animal faces, or like you have um, the hippo mahatomus. Like their face is because of its shape, only that's a few things. And yet, you guys have done an amazing job of having them convey a full range of emotions, like respect. You know, respect of that fact. So, yeah, to I mean, me, that's the key. That's really the key to doing any sort of character. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can live with any other mistakes in the art, but the the facial expression. The, the, the emotions that are, that are beaming through, the characters have to be right. And yeah, Mike Fiennes has nailed it on the, uh, on the characters. Well, I'm looking at a sequence that I can't mention yet because it's an issue too. That involves um, 
an actor who is dressed up as a as, as a dog, and um, I just adore the work that that, that Mike does um, in this particular panel. It's just amazing. Anyway, so but well, I one, I one liberty of one. Oh, this is something that I did not notice until like 15 minutes ago when I told Brett, and Brett said, "You know what? Just, just ask Mark." Because I was just feels weird. I like nobody's wearing pants. Like, how do you just? And you know, there's all these humans who have had human people had questions about like Donald Duck, like which, which cartoon characters wear pants versus which ones do not, is like you know a question of like how, how human are they? Um, but, uh, but yeah, they went the pantsless route here, which I didn't notice until the second time I read through, to be honest. Which one? Um, the pantsless route. Uh, well, so like. I didn't realize this until I was reading through again for the show, but, like, yeah, like, our protagonists are, are anthropomorphic animals of the uh, coat and tie and no pants wearing variety. Um, right, yeah. yeah that's, that's, and, that's, I, that's, and I told Brett, I was like, should I ask about that? And Brett said, you should ask about that. So I'm asking <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, again, we didn't want to, like, I didn't really give him too much of a direction. I just wanted Mike to do what made sense to him. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's and I, I think the decision to go without the pants is, is kind of uh, a, a good one because if nothing else, it creates a lot of controversy on Twitter. Oh man! Oh, that got a response. Uh, people are just like, "Well, how come the humans have pants and the animals don't?" You know, and it's, or or where's the where's Huckleberry Hound's penis? You know? Oh God! Why? <laughs> I mean, I know why, but yeah. why? Um, but I, I think it's, it I, I missed that dust up. Twitter so. Okay, well, I, I missed that dust up. Um, but yeah, I wasn't <laughs> sure, like, it was just like, it's in, like, this seems like it's, I wasn't sure if it was, like, a thing that you were making to create continuity between the characters here and the Hanna Barbera universe, in which that, you know, how they're presented in yeah. the Hanna Barbera universe. I think all the artwork is sort of like a, yeah, sort of a, a compromise between the real world and the Hanna Barbera world. Which creates these sort of weird, dreamlike sort of juxtapositions between the two. The animals don't wear pants, but they do, you know, have, you know, they do have sexual orientation, and they and they talk about their their tumultuous inner lives and highly animated facial expressions. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, no, and then my good, and and, and then my other question about the Hanna Barbera is sort of like what what is it like is is Hanna-Barbera involved in clearing things? Like, did Hanna-Barbera say, like, sure, you can, like, acknowledge our character who's always been gay-coded as gay? Like, how does Hanna-Barbera work with the series? No, I have not heard a peep out of Hanna-Barbera, and I think it's probably for the best. Um, they, they have not really been involved in Skagopus at all. At the very beginning, mm-hmm. when I was doing the Flintstones, they, they were sending me, like, emails, just weird things, like, uh, Fred has to say, yabba dabba do once an issue. And please don't <laughs> mention any deities. And I was like, oh man, this is not the, this is not the comic for you. Uh, you it, it, but so then I, I talked to uh, DC about, it and they're like, oh no, don't worry about it. It's just the, that's uh, just the, the boilerplate thing they say to everybody. Just write what you're gonna write. And so that was very liberating for me. And uh, I haven't really heard from Hanna Barbera since, but I hope they're happy with what I've done with their characters. But I'm not terribly concerned about it. Okay, yeah, we always wonder like what freedom people have to make those decisions. Yeah, but but yeah, thankfully, yeah. Um, hardly anybody's tried to stop me from doing anything. Mostly, when I get editorial feedback, it's on um, it's about things that could likely get us sued, like using uh, historical characters that have litigious estates or or things like that. So, um, but other than that, they've kind of let me just do whatever I wanted. Awesome. I like that. Yeah, it's the way I prefer to work. <laughs> um, you know, I definitely like, cause I, you know, I, oh, sorry, I, you know, I, I'm, oh, sorry, hold on one sec. Oh, go ahead, Brett, you have a question. Oh, oh hopefully it's better. better. Uh, so, uh, so the previous, the previous stuff that you written is very, very satire-heavy. With, with this, this, it feels, feels more, like more like drama, drama and character, character study, study with, with satire. satire. Like, can you, can you talk, talk about, about maybe your progression, progression from series, from, series, uh, from uh, the series from, from like Fred, Fred, Fred Flintstone, Flintstone to this? 
Yeah, and you're, that's a very astute observation, actually, because I did want to tell a much more intimate story, much more plot-driven story, uh, with one sort of story arc from beginning to end of the series, was this, whereas Flintstones, each issue, even though there is an overarching storyline, each issue is self-contained. And it's like an episode of, mm. of television, where it's got to be each episode, each issue has like a beginning, middle, and end. This, Snagglepuss is different. Snagglepuss is more like a novel, where it's it tells one story from issue one to issue six, and uh, and it gets deeply into the characters' backstories and lives and their motivations and very entangled. Uh, whereas Flintstones kept it pretty pretty surface level, at least from a plot standpoint. Uh, and Prez was really just me figuring out how to write a comic book. Uh, Prez was mostly just me trying to tell um, stories that worked as little, each, each one, story, each issue worked as like a sort of a political satire of like a different topic, the election process or militarization and whatnot. And then like Flintstones was more of like a, my, uh, my manifesto about what I see as the central problems with civilization. And, you know, basically I blame every, all the things that we've gotten wrong over the last 30,000 years on, on bedrock. Uh, but I wanted Snagglepuss to be different than either of those two. It would be less political overtly and less um, satirical. and more sort of like an image story about this is the way, this is how laws and governments affect the lives of real people. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was talking with, um, like, just different gay men who I know, and we sort of felt like there's a lot of this that we feel, like, comic, we feel like was a particularly good comic to bring to straight audiences. Like, I think that, you know, like, there's there's queer audiences, that, like, there's queer, there's queer art that's made by queer people for queer people, and, like, you know, like, you, you're, you know, you're heterosexual, da 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 I mean, it's sort of like, this is something that is, we think is particularly going to work, like, to bring some of these conversations to straight audiences, um, which makes sense, actually, pretty well, since that's also your orientation. Um, I wasn't sure if you were thinking about, like, you know, this story in terms of its impact on on a straight audience in particular. Well, I think that, um, again, it, it all really comes back to empathy, and anything that can make you the world through somebody else's eyes I think it's ultimately a good thing and I'm hoping that the straight audiences do read Snagglepuss they realize the parallels between what was happening then, the lavender scare and you know, overt homophobia and criminalization of, of gay bars and what's happening now mm-hmm. you see it, it's not just like a thing in the past but they see the parallels between what's going on now in society and it makes them more empathetic yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the uh, one of the pieces that um, I'm also sort of like trying to, and I don't think I mean I'm sure that his character Lila, his wife, is not you know a major character in the story, but like when we're when we're talking about gay characters in the past who were married to uh, characters of an opposite gender in order to like you know not be singled out and to be able to pass. Like, we generally refer to the wives of gay men as being beards. And I feel like that language is really, like, dismissive of who the women were and, like, what they actually did and contributed to society. Um, right, and like, they're just so history of them. Yeah. Too. I've been trying to, like, I've been trying to, like, really be better about not using that language in my own, like, writing and coverage. And and when I was thinking about that, I also sort of struggling with the word closeted because, I mean, I don't know, when I started studying queer studies as a discipline, like, you know, it was the 90s and there were movies coming out like The Celluloid Closet. I don't, I actually, have you seen The Celluloid Closet? Because you should totally watch The Celluloid Closet if you have not. Okay. It is a documentary about gay, about gay Hollywood um, back in from like the, from the golden age. But, um, you know, it's obviously like the term referring to something as being the closet was not like a value judgment in, in the sense of being like, oh, if you're closeted, you're bad. It was just sort of like a way that we spoke about a situation that people were and had. 
Yeah. And I feel like now when we talk about people being closeted because like of the the different social context that we're in today, it sometimes feels like you're saying it like as an insult to people and it isn't really sensitive to the reality that people were cuz like when we talk about like oh my god, that's another one of those like um oh my gosh, the, the turtle. Like Lindsey Grant for example, is an example of a closeted you know, self-hating gay politician. Like, everybody I know uh-huh. who looks politics is like, okay, this man is closeted. We know because we've seen him. Um, and I think that, you know, we talk about, it's, when we talk about people being closeted, it's usually like a, crit- like a critique of them. So it took me a while to sort of, like, get my head out of, like, the modern space that we were talking about and be like, well, when we're using closeted to describe, using closeted to describe, um, uh, uh, Snagglepuss, like, that's not yeah. us saying that there's something wrong with him. Well, and I think that, that again, is one of the parallels between what's going on today and what, and what happened back then, is that when you say someone's closeted and you attach a value judgment to that, what you're doing is you're saying their personal decision of how they want to live their life is a matter of political priority. And if that's true, if there are political implications to your decision about how you live your life and how you open you are with your own sexuality, that's not a problem with you. That's a problem with the politics. That's because someone somewhere down the line is not recognizing you as a human being. And so it's, it's, it's not right to, uh, to judge or uh, the, the person who's making the decision. It's better to ask why they're being forced into that position to begin with. Yeah, I mean, with the exception of Lindsey Graham, because he's hurting other people. But yes, I agree with you otherwise. Yeah, even, the, even the, like the, 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 the closeted Republicans, if I can use that term, uh, they, I still have a certain amount of sympathy for them because they, they, you know, they, they usually come from the South or from the Midwest or uh, somewhere where they didn't really have much. If they wanted any sort of, like, career, if they didn't want to be disowned by their family, they pretty much had to pretend to be something they weren't. And what better way to pretend than to, you know, if you don't want to be bullied, you, you join the bully in bullying somebody else, which isn't admirable yeah. by any means, but it, but it, I understand that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you I, know, it's I, a decision based on fear, but a fear of a very real thing. I imagining things. I'm hearing some weird background noises. I don't know where those are coming from. Maybe they're not now. Okay. Well, you know, we haven't actually talked to you about your history as a writer, period, and, like, how you kind of came to writing comics. I, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, short and disappointing story, but I'll, I'll tell it. Um, I started my uh, life as a sort of a published writer. It began with a couple books I wrote about the Bible. Um, I condensed every book of the Bible down to, like, a few pages and had uh, – a friend draw some cartoons for it. And it was basically like a retelling of the Bible in a short and modern form. It's called God is Disappointed in You. And uh, I did another one about the books that didn't quite make it in the Bible uh, called Apocrypha Now. And uh, mm-hmm. apparently one of, the, one of those books uh, that, that God is Disappointed in You uh, was, was circulating the offices of D.C. And then when uh, they decided to do a reboot of the um, 1973 sort of aborted comic press that only ran for four issues. Uh, they were asking, well, you know, who do we know that writes sort of funny satire? And Marie Gavins, uh, who happened to have the book, and, and you, my friend, who drew the cartoons for it, just kind of said, well, what about this guy? And uh, they just took a shot in the dark, and I got this weird call in the night from DC Comics asking me if I'd be interested in writing a... Uh, a comic book for them, I and you know, it's just sort of the offer that's it's just strange enough that you've got to say yes, unless you, you know, have a compelling reason not to. So <laughs> the offer was intriguing. I said I said yes without really knowing anything that much about comics or even how to write a comic. And yeah, that was my first foray into comics was writing uh, the reboot of Prez, which ran in 2015, uh, coming up to the 2016 elections. And then, uh, based on that, they offered me the Flintstones. Hmm. So, like, you you didn't have a process of sort of like learning how to do a script, or? Yeah, I had a, yeah. Um, I think the biggest lesson I've learned in writing comics is to trust your artist. Uh, when I started writing, 
I would just cram so much into a page and so many details into a panel that I'm sure it was, you know, I just, I drove Ben Caldwell, the artist on press nuts. Uh, but I quickly learned that the less I put into the, the description of the panel, the less I tried to cram into a page, the more he could dazzle people with his own creativity. He would come up with things that were better than what I had imagined and put them in the background. And, and uh, the more I found, the more freedom I gave him as my artist, uh, the, the, the more, the better it made us both look because he would put his, he would add his own creativity to mine and, and it really showed on the page. And so that's been kind of my, my philosophy of working with artists ever since I did the same thing with Steve Pugh on the Flintstones and, uh, hopefully, uh, Mike feels that he's, that I'm, that I'm not prowling him on Snagglepuss. But yeah, I, I, I couldn't be happier with, since I've started laying off and letting, leaving as much to the artist as possible, I think that, um, that was probably the best decision I could have made in terms of my own comics. Yeah, I mean, Mike's art is fantastic, so good good, good job on that match. Did you read yeah, comics no, growing up? I, you know what? I read, like, really lame comics. It's almost embarrassing to talk. I would read, like, uh, like Mighty Mouse or, uh, like, Donald Duck. Um, but I don't remember them being particularly good. I just remember reading them because they were, they were comics. Uh, but, but really, actually, most of the comics I read when I was a kid were the uh, were the chick tracks. I don't know if oh, you're familiar no. with those. They're like yeah. the short religious comics. Because I grew up in a, yeah, a fundamentalist like... Pentecostal church, and so yeah, those were oh. everywhere. And so yeah, it's like oh, here's one about why uh, why gays are going to hell. Here's one about why Mormons are going to hell. Here's one about why oh, Catholics are going to hell. I remember seeing one about Catholics and this and the and the um. The caricatures that it had of Mexicans were so racist that I was like, "You're not going to win any supporters by drawing Mexican. You're not, you're not no, Mexican Catholics are not going to support you if you draw them as subhuman." Pro tip. They're they're right. utterly fascinating. They're an utterly fascinating gateway into like like one bigot's mind though, uh, to see how how the, the mind works. And uh, I always thought he should have done one last chick track to the very end where it's, you know, God welcomes him into heaven and he's the only one there. Because <laughs> everyone else is in hell. No one else like made the cut except for Jack Chick. I couldn't, like, read them. It was, too, it, was too, it was too upsetting to me. Like, I'm like, I know what people think about me. I don't need, you know, I know that, like, yeah. for context, like, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Like, I don't need to like be shown this again. But like, I knew, like, I totally knew like other people who would do like satires of them. And I was just like, I, I don't know why yeah. you can even joke about that. But yeah. Even when I was like a kid, even when I was like eight or nine and I was fully, you know, in the thrall of the church, uh, even that I knew that these were messed up, that each one was like reading like a Bosch painting or something. Uh, <laughs> but that's what, that's what made them really gripping to me though. is the fact that I, I just knew this was like a roller coaster ride into the mind of a <laughs> Oh my God, that's so interesting! Wow. Well, in terms of comics medium, like, what do you like about comics that you can do, start, you know, as a writer, in the comics medium particularly? I like the fact that you know, if, if I were writing, uh, say, like movie scripts, uh, there would be you know a thirty, forty million dollar budget, so you'd have a room full of uh, executives going over the you know the dailies, and then the final cut, and you'd have editors, all these people involved. So at the end, the movie would look probably nothing like what you wanted, and it would have had three or four other writers putting their fingerprints on it and changing things. And in the end, it wouldn't really be your own. But because they, uh, they, it's relatively cheap to produce a comic, it's really just you and the artist. And whatever you say goes, and somebody else has got to draw it. And it's, whatever you put on the page is going to end up in the reader's hands. So it's, it's a visual medium. It's really the the most direct, the one where they're willing to let you take the most chances and get your vision in its most complete form to the reader. There's nothing else like it. Uh, there's no other visual medium that, that is as direct and as raw and experimental as comics. And um, I'm, I'm, it's like a it's like an experimental nuclear physics lab. It's like if you're working if you're working on Viagra or whatever, you have to do the experiments that they want you to do. And it's all prescribed towards this very singular goal. And you can't deviate from things that don't, don't achieve that goal. But if you're working like sort of an experimental lab where there's no rules, and you're not, you, can, you can do anything. 
And um, if you're a physicist, you'd probably much rather be working in the, ex, you know, the highly experimental lab where you can work on, on making flying monkeys or whatever than the place where you're just, you know, going to work for Dow Chemical every day and work, finding out which, you know, uh, boner pill you're working on that week. That's my, oh, that's my feeling. If I were well, that, you, writing, you, set really, perfectly, be... you set me up perfectly for a question that Brett posted, which, um, because the audio from his end is terrible right now, I am... I am transferring Brett's spirit through the waves of the internet to this podcast. Um, he asked, uh, is it harder for you to write satire in today's political environment or easier or different? That's a good question because, yeah, you always feel like you're kind of being outflanked by political reality. Like no matter yeah. how crazy or how, how acerbic you are, something will happen which makes you look tame by comparison. But I don't worry about that so much because – I think I, I, I want to write more. I'm not trying to like predict things or trying to like out crazy the, the, the nut jobs. I'm more like just talking about what I see as fundamental flaws in human psychology and, you know, problems that have plagued us in politics for, for decades and generations, if not millennia. And so I feel like those things never really get um, shown up by the, uh, by the, by whoever's in charge. So I, tr I try to make my writing as, as humane and as sort of grounded in human uh, psychological um, incentives as possible. And then I, f I find that they, they, they have much better staying power. Hmm. And um, also with respect to the comics art, like you have a lot of visual jokes throughout your series and are those part of the script or is that something that comes from the artists you're working with? I usually kind of get the ball rolling. Like I write a lot of sort of like store pun names or just sort of weird signs in the background. And then like uh, trying to one-up me, artists will usually come up with their own stuff and add them to it. Like when I was writing Flintstones, um, I basically, the first thing I wrote was just like a two-page uh, one-panel thing that was just like the town of Bedrock. And then I just came up with like a dozen business names uh, that I thought should be in bedrock. You know, there was a gay bar called Homo Erectus. There was a, like an artisanal mammoth restaurant called Whammoth Bammoth Thank You Mammoth, or uh, like a, a big Neanderthal men's store. And I was coming up with a bunch of these. And then like throughout the, the series, I think that kind of threw down the gauntlet for Steve Pugh, the artist. And throughout the series, he would just throw his own things in the background or, or you know, put the, like I would come up with T-shirts that Pebbles should be wearing. Like I, she's wearing a, a T-shirt for uh, from a Nick Caveman concert. And then uh, he would come up with his own T-shirts that, that or posters that Pebbles have in the, in the background. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely a combination of both. Cool. Yeah, it's always a different thing for different writers and artists. Um, so how many more issues are there going to be of Snagglepuss? Uh, there's a total run of six, so there's five more. Oh, okay, cool. And then what are you going to be doing after that? Do you have something else lined up in the, on the horizon? Yeah, it hasn't been formally announced yet, so I don't want to, I don't want to preempt them too much, but I'm working on a, a Vertigo title, uh, so, which I'm really excited about. Uh, so I don't want to talk too much about it, but that, that should be announced shortly, I think. And, um, and uh, yeah, I've also pitched a few things, but I don't want to. I don't want to say what they are because I want to embarrass myself when they don't. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I've got I've, I've got more fires on the or I got more irons in the fire. Got it. Um, we will not we will not spoil anything as that in advance. Um, it's interesting. Like I, uh, I, you know, I've been definitely going and sort of talking to different folks to sort of get a sense of like where folks are, you know, in terms of their reading and the comic. And for me, like. I really am primarily engaging with the. I, 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 I primarily was engaging with this like because of the historical fiction aspect of it. Um, are there uh, other historical fiction periods that you would like to be able to delve into? Like I, I, it feels like so much of the American historical fiction stuff is just everything is about World War II all the damn yeah. time. Or Civil War. Yeah, because the last time we really felt like, good about ourselves as a nation, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I it's the most overdone period doing, yeah. of, of history, uh, the, yeah, sort of World War II. Yeah. I, and, uh, I, I really wanted, wish I, you know, this was my one regret of like not doing more issues of Snagglepuss and ending it at six is that I can't get more until, because uh, Khrushchev shows up as a character and it becomes, you know, and you be, uh, there, there's like a storyline between. 
uh, Khrushchev and Vice President Nixon. And uh, I wish I could have spent more time on that. But, yeah, it kind of escalates from, like, you know, the um, uh, Soviet Union getting the hydrogen bomb in issue number one, to them doing uh, uh, successful experiments in later issues, to, like, Khrushchev talking about pressing his advantage, and then Nixon showing up at the Moscow trade show. And, uh, and, and it, it ends, I think, a good point, but I wish, I wish in a way I could have had um, more time to talk more about this sort of um, high and political view of what's going on in the world at the same time that like Snagglepuss is fighting, um, is fighting persecution by the, the, the Red Scare. Mm. Have you been able to sort of get any feedback from folks who were, you know, around in that time or involved in the political world in that space? No, but I would love that. Um, yeah, yeah. I and mean, that was like uh, 65 years ago. So uh, there's not very many of those people left who were like adults and functioning. Yeah. And but if any of them did happen to read Snagglepuss, please contact me. I would love to. Know <laughs> yeah, I, I have a friend's parents who like whose their parents, i.e., my friend's grandparents who are no longer with us, would be like the audience. So New York socialists involved in the arts during that time period. And like, I, yeah, like I, I really appreciated the um, Rosenberg's related framing device of that first story. And um, I, I don't want to like yeah. go into too much about what that revealed, but it was, it was really apt, but yeah, I have at least one person who I'm going to try to get their parents to okay. check it out. Great. Um, uh, but yeah, like with the, the story with the Rosenbergs, it's the sort of thing where I feel like the vast majority of Americans, literally what they think they know is just not true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think that I mean historically, uh, Julius Rosenberg certainly was 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 working. Uh, I mean, he is. I think motives were to like not to foment a nuclear war, but to do the opposite to keep the balance of power. Uh, but he definitely was engaged in some espionage. But uh, they, but Ethel Rosenberg, I think they just executed for the hell of it, <laughs> just mm-hmm. be, to make it you know because she was married to him. And, and and really, there is no evidence that she did anything uh, other than just being married to Julius Rosenberg. But it just felt like they were, you know, it, it made a made it made them feel like they were taking it more seriously, or you know, they they um, were sending a stronger message if they executed both of them. I think at the time too, like uh, you know, to, if if they're gonna because of the the imbalance. I mean, it was very rare to, to execute a woman. So I, I think that the State Department probably felt, well, if we execute a woman then everybody knows that we're taking this extremely seriously and we'll come after anyone. Uh, so I think she was just kind of sacrificed for mm-hmm. the, the message. I mean, my understanding is that they were also partially set up by like their, by, by, a, by another relative who was actually, you know, working with the Russians and they were not directly like either yeah, of them in that way. They, they well, were was... communists, but that doesn't mean that you're a spy. Right. No. So, yeah, I mean, and I think that in a lot of ways it was, uh, I mean, the, the the stuff that get, it was sensationalized, even beyond the, the, whether the actual question of innocence or guilt, it was sensationalized yeah. to uh, to a point. I think it was, they sensationalized their case, even though espionage was common on both sides, uh, because to they could make them look to most Americans like these, you know, these these Jews, these sort of New York intellectual yeah. Jews that you can't, you you, you know, these these others who you you know, the, the, this foreign outsider element that is creeping around every corner. I think it was easier to give people that sort of feeling of being invaded from within by picking this, you know, intellectual, smart Jewish couple than it would have been if they picked, you know, some farmer in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the anti-Semitism was like completely at the surface of all of it. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people learn American history through historical fiction and, um, this definitely has the potential to be something that introduces people to those periods and that information. Yeah, well, that's my hope. My hope is that people will read it and say, "Oh my God, did that really happen?" And then go back and, you know, Wikipedia or look up, you know, these these events or these, these uh, in 1953, and oh my God, that really did. One of my, uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but yeah, I, I, don't know, I was going to spoiler uh, some of some of something coming up in an upcoming issue, but but yeah, there there I refer to. The historic events that actually happened during this time period, which I think people will find surprising. 
Yeah, I, you, maybe at some point we get to get up a recommended reading list, you know, for history and or documentaries and things like that around this period. But uh, yeah, I should also say, like, I think that you're Dorothy Parker, like, you nailed it, you know, and Lillian Hellman, like, the historical figures whose voices I'm familiar enough with to have an opinion on. I think you did a great job on that, and I think that's yeah. Well, most, hard. most of the people who were, you know, titans who were really the people that other artists respected and that were actually had an influence on their times are not the people we've heard of, are not the people that were that that have that that were famous on you know a uh, a surface you know level because they weren't necessarily film stars or TV stars. They were thinkers. They were writers. But these are the people who moved the world back then. The Lillian Hellman's and the Dorothy Parker's. Yeah, yeah. But I think also just getting their voices right is like without it feeling. Yeah, like the Dorothy am. Parker one scared me. Uh, that kept me up a little because it's like, <laughs> who, you know, who do you think you are trying to put words in the mouth of Dorothy Parker? But my favorite line in the entire issue number one uh, was when, uh, you know, Snagglepuss tries in vain to get her job working in television. And she said, oh, I wasn't feeling well, so I called it an absence. And yeah. uh, that was actually written by my wife. I didn't even write that Ooh. line. But uh, that was great. But yeah, and she didn't say it like to write for the comic. She just said that jokingly on her own. And I was like, oh my god, that's got to be something Dorothy Parker says. Yeah, totally. Um, oh, Brett had a question, which was um, a lot of what's depicted. In the series, feels like you're repeating things that are repeating today. Are you thinking about that as you're writing the series? Am I thinking about repeating? The, oh, is, is no, no. How 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 the things in the story seem like they are things that are happening now? Oh yeah, yeah. Like I feel like again, we. Um, I, I think that there's a, there's a, an incentive to um, make people feel like we're in a state of great peril at all times, because when the people do feel like we're in great peril and that the, the barbarians at the gate, they're willing to put up with a lot more from their leadership. They're willing to uh, close ranks and demand conformity and surrender their own rights in a way they would not if they, they felt like um, they weren't in immediate danger. And so I think there's this sort of like um, this sort of peril industry or this, this um, peril complex that, that, the media, uh, the conservative media particularly, and the uh, and the political establishment uh, are trying to cook up so that you will be more willing to to put up with their failures on basically every other uh, realm of American politics as long as they keep you safe. And I think that's what's kind of behind scrapping the deal with Iran, which by all accounts is, was working mm-hmm. just fine, and and you know uh like stirring things up you know with 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 other countries insulting other leaders it's to give americans the false impression that they're under constant and immediate threat by the rest of the world uh when in fact that's not really the case for and and uh it's it's so you'll put up with incompetent and uh leadership that's not working in your best interests on any other issue yep and I feel okay. like that's pretty much the same now as it was back then. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, Mark. Um, we, we're really great to have you on the show. We always ask our guests uh, to tell our listeners where we can find them and follow them on the Internet. Uh, like, I don't know, do you have a Twitter account, Tumblr? Yes, I do. Um, and that's probably the best place to find me. The best place to follow me is on Twitter. And my handle is at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Uh, yeah, and I will ha- happily interact with anybody on the Twitter. Excellent. We appreciate. Um, and uh, for our guests, uh, we don't know who will be with us on Monday, but we will be back on Monday, and then we'll be having a couple of different episodes around Black Panther throughout the rest of the month. It'll be a heavily Black Panther month. Uh, as always, we are at graphicpolicy.com on Graphic Policy at Twitter. I, myself, Ilana. I'm on Twitter all the goddamn time as Ilana underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Um, And uh, if you came to this podcast late, don't worry. It's online. You'll also be able to download it on iTunes in a few hours. We're also on SoundCloud and Stitcher, so you can listen to this podcast on the go at any time. And uh, love to get your feedback. And thank you again, Mark, for being our guest. And uh, I'm sure, yes, Um, I think we're going to wrap.
and I'm sorry about the technical and audio wackiness earlier. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, no, it was, and, it was kind of bad at the beginning. I couldn't. I had a hard time with some of the, some of the earlier questions, but it also read itself out. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So I guess we're signing off. Sorry, I'm just checking with Brett to make sure we're all yes. Well, uh, as Brett would say, if he was not currently on mute, keep it geeky. And we'll be back next week.